1: Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Wes Craven died on Sunday at the age of 76 after suffering from brain cancer. And let me start my tribute by saying one thing. Wes Craven scared the crap out of me in ways other directors never have. It was his first film, Last House on the Left, that did it. I was a teenager, and the film wasn't about monsters, demons, or boogeymen, but rather ordinary humans with a particularly vicious streak. It was Craven's directorial debut, and it was crude and extremely low-budget. But that was partially what made it so terrifying. Its grittiness and lack of Hollywood gloss made it feel more real. And Craven gave us characters that had a level of brutality that was terrifying. And it wasn't just the physical violence. It had to do with a total lack of empathy and an intimate desire to not just inflict physical pain, but emotional trauma and humiliation.
0: Piss your pants. <laughs> Piss your pants. (laughs) He said, piss your pants. You sick mother.
1: (laughs) It's a film about what you could say is the most terrifying thing, a loss of humanity. So while other horror directors might be more sophisticated or cerebral, Craven got me in a visceral way with Last House on the Left that few other films have done. In fact, it's a film that I often hesitate to watch because I know it'll put me through the ringer. I want to remind people of what seeing Last House on the Left was like back in the 70s. To start, let's listen to the trailer. It rests
0: on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The Last House on the Left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Take as much as you can. Only a movie.
1: As with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which in some ways is the granddaddy of the modern slasher film, Last House on the Left was disturbing in the way it undermined our sense of security and made us something of an accomplice in its crimes. Hitchcock was a polished master, and Craven was a cruder craftsman in his debut, but both of their films unnerved the audience with violence early on and then implicated viewers to a degree in the crimes committed. With Psycho, we got caught up in the minutiae of Anthony Perkins' killer cleaning up after his murder, and reluctantly wanted to see him get every drop of bloody evidence disposed of because we were so wrapped up in his process. In the case of Last House on the Left, we relish the revenge taken by the parents over the murder of their daughter. The parents are not much different from us, and as in the best horror, we discover that the darkness can lie within ourselves. Craven's 1972 film was an unofficial remake of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. Craven created a contemporary horror story from Bergman's medieval tale of a young girl who's raped and murdered, and whose murderers end up seeking shelter at her parents' home, where her mother and father exact a chilling revenge. What made Craven's film so good as a remake is that the source material was unexpected, and he didn't have to tweak it very much to find disturbing horror elements. Plus, the low-tech look of Craven's film added to the creepiness of the proceedings. While Bergman's film tackled religion and morality overtly and seriously, Craven's approach was to present something of an amoral universe. Instead of an innocent young virgin on her way to church, Craven's adolescent girls are on their way to a rock concert and looking for a good time. The assailants in Craven's film are depicted as sadistic sociopaths devoid of any humanity as they brutalize the girls. They break and batter the two girls as if they were nothing more than a pair of dolls to be played with. In a documentary, Craven discussed the brutality.
0: Okay, we got to that place, and it's it's good we got to that place, but that's a horrible place, you know. And that's always been something that I've juggled the rest of my career, places... I went, we went, in Last House, I haven't gone again and don't really have a desire to go again, but somehow, for, for some reason at that time, I felt like it was necessary just to get to the guts of the matter, and uh, uh, we had done it, you know, you could feel it on the set, and uh, there was kind of a somberness there, you know, you really felt the death of the character, and you felt not just the death of the victim, but you felt kind of the death of the of the killers. You know, you felt like they had lost whatever shred of innocence they had. There's, a, there's several moments in the film afterwards where they, they change clothes they wash, they put on suits and ties, and they just you could feel them desperately trying to forget that they had done what they had done. One of the reasons why this film is so powerful is that n- I can't define exactly what it was, and I still can't look at it. It's not a film I go back and say, oh, I, just, <laughs> I think I'll take Saturday afternoon and just watch that old film again. It's like it is still an assault of film. It is still a film that just is completely uncompromising and does not make you comfortable. Um, and beyond that, I can't define it. All I know is that I did not have any restrictions on what I shot except that what I wanted to impose and I wanted to deal with something very, very um, nasty. You know, I was dealing with anti-personal violence and just how ugly it could be.
2: And um,
0: yeah, you, know, you end up with films that's in many ways ugly, you know, and uh, it's unjustified except that it, those things exist and, um, you know, art is about things that exist.
1: Craven says his film was in part a reaction to the violence he saw on TV in news footage about the Vietnam War. He said that he wanted to capture that same sense of reality in the violence he put on the screen. When it came out, Craven's film was controversial for its violence and brutal sexuality. It divided critics. Some felt it was pure exploitative trash, while others saw the film as breaking the rules in an artistically challenging manner. The film was banned in the UK and Australia and initially was given an X rating from the MPAA. In the documentary, Craven describes the kind of censorship the film received after its release. And
0: didn't you wasn't there a special editing room set up someplace that just tried to go through all the film cans with all these pieces of film in it and splice together one more intact version of the film because everything came back always cut up by irate projectionists or religious groups Mm, or whatever.
1: When I interviewed Craven in 2006 for the remake of The Hills Have Eyes, he explained that he had devised a theory that the first monster you must frighten an audience with is the director. And that's precisely what he did for me with Last House on the Left. What scared me in part was that I thought the director had to be sick and twisted to create such a sadistic film. He had me so scared I could no longer separate the film from the filmmaker. And that's what the remake of Last House on the Left completely missed. The remake looks like a product produced by a slick corporation. There's a gloss and sheen to everything, and even the violence has high production values. It all looks planned and staged in a way Craven's original film did not. And all that slickness works against the remake because it helps to distance the audience from the unpleasantness on the screen. Like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Craven's Last House on the Left used its lack of funds to create a film where the do-it-yourself approach made it seem somehow more real and therefore more terrifying because we believed it could happen. The 2009 remake also takes the violence to ridiculous extremes, with an elaborate Saw-like torture gimmick at the end. In the original film, Craven did more with less. He upped our discomfort by having the young girl raped and tortured right by her house as the police were talking with her parents and assuring them that she was most likely safe. That's a scene from Every Parent's Nightmare. The assailants were also much more vicious in their attacks and more deliberately cruel. In the original, the law, represented by inept cops, and social order seemed not to exist. And that creates a more unnerving moral universe for the story to play out. And that probably reflected the way a young man like Craven felt about the government, military, and cops during the Vietnam War era. But Craven quickly moved away from realistic horror and on to more supernatural scares by creating Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street and launching his first horror franchise. Here's the trailer for the first film to give us Robert England as the iconic Freddy Krueger.
2: The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet but something is coming to get them.
1: There's something
0: out there, isn't
2: there?
0: You could just see cuts happening.
2: What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know.
3: What There's
2: a coroner I've got to say.
0: He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it.
2: They're gonna kill me for sure.
3: Did you do it?
0: There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag.
2: No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next.
1: Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare
0: on Elm Street.
1: Ah! Do you believe in the Boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep.
0: No! Ah!
2: She's the only one who can stop it if she fails.
0: I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Help me! Where are you?
2: From Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have
0: Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror. Nightmare on Elm Street. In
1: 1994, Craven created the meta-sequel, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, in which actress Heather Lagenkamp plays herself and finds Freddy Krueger trying to cross over into her real world. Craven appears as himself and discusses his new script with the actress.
0: I can tell you what The Nightmare is about so far. It's it's about this entity, whatever you want to call it. It's, It's old, it's very old. It's existed in different forms at different times. About the only thing about it that stays the same is what it lives for, really.
1: What is that?
0: Oh, the murder of innocence.
1: This is still a script we're talking about, right, Wes?
0: Yeah, well, I sort of think of it as a nightmare in progress.
1: Well, in this nightmare in progress, then, does this thing have any weaknesses?
0: Yeah, well, it can be captured sometimes.
1: Captured? How?
0: And by storytellers, of all things. I mean, every so often, they imagine a story good enough to sort of catch its essence. And then, for a while, it's held prisoner in the story.
3: Like the genie in the bottle?
0: Exactly, exactly. But the problem comes when the story dies. And that can happen in a lot of ways. It can get too familiar to people, or somebody waters it down to make it an easier sell, you know? Or maybe it's just so upsetting to society that it's banned outright. However it happens when the story dies, the evil is set free.
1: You're saying Freddy is this ancient thing?
0: Right, current version. And for uh, 10 years, he's been held captive pretty much as Freddy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But now that the films have ended, the genie's out of the bottle. That's that's what the nightmares are telling me, and that's what I'm writing.
1: What if Freddy is loose in your script? Where's he gonna go? Another age, another form?
0: No, yeah, that's not what the dreams have him doing, though. No.
1: What is he doing?
0: Well, see, so he's sort of gotten used to being Freddy now, and uh, he likes our time and space, so he's decided to cross over. Out of films, into our reality.
1: The film ends with Camp reading the script for the proposed sequel. We open on an old wooden bench. There's fire and tools, and a man's grimy hands building what soon is revealed as a gleaming set of claws. And the claws are moving now, as if awakening from a long and unwanted sleep. Then the man lays one trembling hand flat upon the table, and with his other picks up a thick, sharp blade. Behind the lights, faces watch from the darkness. Ready to laugh or scream in terror. New Nightmare was a turning point in Craven's career, the point at which he decided he no longer wanted to make people scream in terror, but rather laugh. New Nightmare paved the way for the jokey, self-reflexive style of his second franchise, Scream. In New Nightmare, the tone was not yet that jokey. Self-reflexive, yes, but jokey, no. Craven was still constructing a horror drama, in which we cared about the characters and were not rooting for them to be killed off. But with Scream, Craven announced that he had grown less serious about horror. His Scream franchise may have made lots of money and won a devoted following, but it did major damage to the horror genre by turning it silly and comedic. It's not that horror and comedy can't mix. They're great examples of that in The Fearless Vampire Killers and Shaun of the Dead. No, the problem has been that Scream created a style of horror that was self-reflexive Jokey to the point of annoyance, and desperate to be oh so hip and cool. It was as if it resorted to laughs because it was afraid that its jaded audience could no longer be scared, so the film didn't even bother to try and scare them. Just listen to the trailer. Hello? Hello? Who is this?
0: You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine.
1: <laughs> I don't think so.
0: What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn?
3: Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video.
0: Really? What?
3: Well, oh, just some scary movie.
0: You like scary movies?
1: Uh-huh.
0: You never told me your name.
1: Why do you want to know my
0: name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game.
3: It all began with a scream over 911.
0: Someone who's seen one too many scary movies now he's taken his love of fear hello hello sydney one step too far do you like scary movies what's the point they're all the same some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act she's always running up the stairs and she should be going out the front door it's insulting there are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie number one you can never have sex It's me. Never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back!
2: You didn't make the rules. The police
0: are always on track. If they watch Palm Night, it's save
3: time.
2: He just kills by them. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to
0: hide. You. Scream.
1: Scream forced me into a love-hate relationship with Wes Craven. I loved his early work, but I hated what Scream did and how it turned horror into a shell of its former self. I couldn't understand why Craven took this turn, but he seemed able to joke about it when he made a cameo in the film Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back.
0: It's not an ice I cut.
2: A monkey? Wes? I mean, Jesus, you guys aren't even trying anymore, are you?
0: What? The market research says people love monkeys. We love this monkey! Do so!
1: See? I always respected Craven as a smart, articulate man. He earned an undergraduate degree in English and psychology and a master's degree in philosophy and writing. He even taught English and was a humanities professor. You'll find a few literary references in his first Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's an English class that puts Nancy to sleep for one of her encounters with Freddie. So because he was smart and articulate when talking about horror, I was disappointed that he never topped his early work. I do want to mention that Craven also directed a non-genre film, Music of the Heart, which garnered Meryl Streep an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. And he also wrote a novel, The Fountain Society. But whatever struggles I've had with Craven's recent films, he'll always hold a special place in my heart for scaring the crap out of me. I respect anyone who can do that. Here's my 2006 interview with Craven regarding the remake he was producing of his own film, "The Hills Have Eyes." Hope you enjoy it.:
3: Well, I just want to ask you, how does it feel to be at a point in your career where you're producing a remake of your own film?:
1: <laughs> I think it's amusing.
2: Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, I don't think a film should be remade. Uh you know, 10 years after it came out, but 30 years later, I think that's permissible. And it's interesting to see something that I did as a young man being done by another young man um, who makes it his own. So it's fun. It's been a very interesting process.
3: Now, in that 30 years' time, how do you see the horror genre having changed?
2: Wow. Um, Well, I think it's gone through a lot of permutations. It's certainly gone up through, uh, all the way through, you know, Kind Of scream, which branched it out into self reflective uh, looking at uh, the audience themselves, uh, and uh, I think now has is starting to swing back in, in a way to a style of films that was more common in the 70s. So I think it's a, in, in a, a kind of a revisiting of um, you know of its origins, if you will.
3: Do you think, see anything? In terms of current events or the, the time frame we're in now that somehow reflect the 70s that explain why we're kind of doing, having a return to that, or is it just kind of the cycle of Hollywood? Well,
2: it's probably dangerous to, to think of a one-to-one connection to, with things, but it, you certainly have to uh, take into account that both times were times when our government was in an unpopular war or a very controversial war, uh, and this one particularly, I think, uh, has been unsettling. To everybody, um, you know, because of the events of 9 11 and because of just the uh, everyday brutality of it. And the fact that you have um, an enemy, if you want to call it that, who doesn't wear a uniform and seems so totally alien, you know, that they can saw somebody's head off in front of a TV camera as just part of their, you know, pressure agenda. So that's I think those things are pro- profoundly unsettling, and um, in some ways these films that deal with people that um, you know are completely outside of our sort of quote civilized can uh, helps us you know deal with these uh, very conflicting you know, things that are happening in real life
3: now, do you think it's gotten harder to scare people because of the things that they can see on television and and you know what things that are going on in the world
2: no because i, I you know I don't think. It's not like I don't think any of us that make these films feel like we're going to scare the audience in a way that they've never been scared before. I.e., they've never seen anything like it in real life. I think it's actually the contrary. Is horror films, films in general, but horror films certainly, when it comes to violence, deal with things that are out there right now. You know, Frankenstein was done when you know modern medicine and science was kind of blossoming into you know doing things with human beings. I think in this case, where you have um, when you have people doing things on a very, very primal level, you know just right down down and dirty in the war i mean the irony of the quote the world's most powerful nation you know going to war with you know. I don't know what, you know, $45 million jet and it gets shot down by a $10 rocket. You know, that sort of feeling like all the, it's the horror film equivalent of the telephone breaking. You know, the technology does not work. Uh, it doesn't work with this kind of stuff. And, and um, so it all comes down to you versus uh, this other way of looking at life in the world. And so they they play out a theater of things that they're actually seeing in real life. So, you know, the more bizarre real life gets, the more bizarre the movies will get.
3: Well, I think what made your films so scary, like Last House on the Left, or not so much scary as disturbing, but Last House on the Left and the Hills Have Eyes was almost the low budgetness of it somehow made it seem more realistic and therefore more bothersome.
2: Well, it's interesting. The first time I watched uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I concluded, I went to see it by myself in a theater on 42nd Street, I concluded that it must have been made by a group of Mansonites because it had exactly that quality. It was kind of greenish-grainy, and the whole thing just looked homemade. It was always ironic to later meet Toby Hooper and the sweetest guy in the world. So I kind of devised a theory or or a statement that kind of covers that for me, and, and that is that the first uh, monster that you must frighten an audience with in a horror film is the director because I think it's very important that the audience feel like this is outside the boundaries of anything that's controlled or acceptable or, uh, you know, polite or civilized because that's kind of where these fears come from. It doesn't come from a civilized matrix. It comes from, you know, outside of that. And, uh, you know, a film that looks like it was made by just a bunch of people instead of a corporation, uh, you know, Immediately puts you in footing that's shaky.
3: Now, those the the group of horror films that came out in the seventies. What do you think that as a group you were? Those filmmakers were kind of pushing. What kind of taboos or conventions were they challenging at that time?
2: Well, I would give a, a, a version of Marlon Brando's uh, react, uh, answer, which is what he you got. You know, it, you're really out to break all the boundaries. You know, because um you feel like the boundaries have started to stifle the culture or make it insane so you kind of it's kind of shatter everything and and get down to to basics and also just to look behind the kind of construct that the, court, the culture has erected of itself which you feel like is a lie so i think all horror films have to do with going back to the individual uh you know and it's they're not anti technology so much as they're a warning that technology will not save your ass when it comes down to, you know, the nitty-gritty. Uh, and they're not anti-government so much as saying that ultimately we'll probably have to end up defending ourselves and our own lives. I mean, New Orleans is a classic example where all the technology in the, probably the world's most technological culture, when Mother Nature comes in, when something big and primal comes in, all that stuff is gone It's just gone, and it's not there to help you, and the government's not there to help you, and that is a classic generator of a horror film. You know, and that is what's in the back of, I think, all the just kind of common people, is that, you know, ultimately there's nobody out there to help you, but you have to be able to do it yourself.
3: And is part of what creates this disturbing quality also is how far the quote-unquote civilized people will go to survive?
2: I think so, and in a way it's, you know... You can take that negatively or positively, but, you know, it's certainly either way it's a bitter pill. Um, the good news, I, you know, I think that is buried in those kind of scenarios is that you do have it in you to stand up to this kind of thing. Uh, the bad news is, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff is in you, you know, that you're not innocent either. You know, I don't think without articulating it necessarily, it's not like all the horror film directors sit around at coffee tables and cafes and say, yes, this is the state where we're making. But I think that is the general substance of of a lot of horror films.
3: A lot of times people kind of downgrade horror in the way they talk about it. You know, it's B-movie horror or, you know, it's just a horror film kind of thing. But if people ask you something like, why should I put myself through the grinder of going to see some of these horror films, what kind of an answer do you give them?
2: Uh, The answer I give them is you're going through a grinder. Yeah, It's called life. And and what a horror film does is give a sort of a narrative to what is in real life chaotic and unpredictable and not under anybody's control. In a horror film, you're under the control, at least of the director and the filmmakers. But you're confronted with things that are very primal and very frightening. So I've never felt like an audience goes in to be frightened. I always feel like, whether they know it or not, an audience goes in frightened already and they're looking for a narrative that somehow... Uh, you know, reflects that fear and gives it some shape and some resolution. I'm being waved at, uh, so I guess.
3: Uh, oh, can they let me sneak one last question? One last, I guess, sure. Okay. Yeah. can you just comment briefly on the source material that inspired you and what it was about that source material that hooked your interest?
2: Um, I think I'm attracted to stories where um, things kind of flip halfway through. Uh, insofar as civilized people become uncivilized, and the uncivilized are revealed to be. A lot like us, much more than we'd like to admit. It was um, in a book called, uh, I believe, "Murder and Mayhem" in, in England, and uh, it was about a historical account of the Shawnee Bean family, which uh, was a family of uh, feral people who had uh, had gone feral um, and who cannibalized uh, travelers, who you know would drag them off their horses and kill the horse and kill the person and. Um, you know, virtually eat them. And it, it, they were on a rather obscure but very direct road between Edinburgh and London, and it was a shortcut people wanted to take, but after a while thought was haunted. And uh, a couple um, were attacked, and uh, one person got away, and he was very important in the court, and so people listened to him, and they went back, and after searching, a dog went down a path that was uh, along a cliff face uh, looking out on the English Channel, and there was a cave, and they went in there and found. I don't know, 17, 20 people that were all inter, inter, you know, related, and there were bodies pickled in sea brine, and and uh, you know they were like completely like what the equivalent of mutants, and and the part that really fascinated me beyond that, which is fascinating, is that they were all taken back to London and then horribly tortured for a very long time by the most civilized people, so uh, it just um, to me just had the irony that I like. So I guess that's my last answer to the last question. All
3: right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the special edition Cinema Junkie podcast, paying tribute to director Wes Craven, who died on Sunday from brain cancer. You can get new film reviews every Thursday and interviews every Friday by subscribing to the Cinema Junkie podcast on iTunes. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.